I was uh, <clears throat> reading a, a book in the mentoring world, and um, this guy opens the story with the story of a an older man who is retiring from his position as a president in a bank, and a younger man who's taking his position. The younger man, not being a fool, sits down and goes, I've seen what you've done with this place, and it's awesome. Your employees respect you. The people of the community love you. You've, I mean, everything is good that I'm seeing, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm inheriting this, and how do, I, how do I do all of this? How did you get to here? And the president of the bank had always been known as one who was very, very few words. He, never, he didn't speak a lot, so when he did, people paid attention And so he looks at the young man across his desk and he says, two words, young man, good decisions. And the young man, of course, obviously, hopefully being stirred a little bit, looks at him and and says, well, how how do I come about learning what a good decision is? And the old man looks across the table and says, one word, experience. And the young man, of course, intrigued by the little words being used, says to the old man, how do I go about getting experience? And the old man says two words, bad decisions. <laughs> and I, I was sitting there as I read that, and I mean, his, the author's point is just the idea of we've all made bad decisions, and chances are we have made bad decisions and gone, if someone had only told me, if someone had shared with me, if someone had stepped in, if somebody was walking with me, if I was looking to someone to walk with me, I might have been spared the results or the consequences of my bad decisions. Now, I am a a firm believer that the Lord does not waste any experience in our life, so even the bad decisions the Lord can redeem. So please hear me in the midst of that. But I think some of us, we would not go, if I had it all over to do again, I'd do it the exact same way. That's a foolish statement. (laughs) Because for some of us, there are things we would not have done the same. Much of it may be yes, but much of it, man, if somebody had just stepped in and somebody had just cared or somebody had just spoken, I might not have walked the difficult road that I did. But what we see about the Proverbs is that it's written to the wise. Those who listen will grow wiser. It's written to the clueless, the ones who have no idea. It's written to the young. It's written to the old. It's written to the fool. It's written to the scoffer, the one who mocks and makes fun of. Proverbs is an invitation to listen to wisdom, even to the scoffer. It's written to the lazy bone. I love the wording in the Proverbs. The one who sits around and does nothing. Proverbs and the wisdom of Proverbs says, get up, get to it. The topics, it covers friendships, how to have friendships, neighbors, the power of our words, um, the the husband and wife relationship, the parents and children relationship, how to live on your own, how to have a brother and sister relationship. Life and death ultimately hang in the balance through the words of the Proverbs. That's what we see. They say this. Wisdom announces that she's around. In Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom has built her house. She has carved its seven columns. She has prepared a great banquet, mixed the wines and set the table. She has sent her servants to invite everyone to come. She calls out from the heights overlooking the city. Come in with me, she urges the simple. To those who lack good judgment, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways behind and begin to live. Learn to use good judgment. But 
if you pay attention to the Proverbs, you notice that it's not just wisdom that's crying out. Someone else is calling out to us. In Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 13, the woman named Folly is brash. She is ignorant and doesn't know it. She sits in her doorway on the heights overlooking the city. She calls out to men going by who are minding their own business. Come in with me, she urges the simple. To those who lack good judgment, she says, stolen water is refreshing. Food eaten in secret tastes the best. But little do they know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of the grave. Both wisdom and foolishness have a platform. And both of them are constantly crying out. They are not silent. They do not stay quiet. They are talking and inviting non-stop. So you have wisdom calling out and you have folly calling out. And the chances are that you are either going to listen to one and kind of wrestle with the other, or you're going to listen to one and kind of wrestle with the other. So you can be wise, and you might make a foolish decision, but you can still pursue wisdom, or you can be a fool, and maybe every once in a while you can do something that looks smart, but you still remain a fool. Either way, one of them is going to be in the driver's seat. Can't do them both. You can't answer them both. And ultimately... The end result is very different for both wisdom and foolishness. Listen to Proverbs chapter 1. For they hated knowledge and chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way. Isn't this what we want? We're like, I did it my way. We, we think that's like the best thing possible when the reality is the wisdom of the proverb says that's the bitter fruit. Doing things your own way is not the way to freedom or life. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency, but all who listen to me will live in peace untroubled by fear or harm. Sometimes in life, you have to consider the end road of these choices. I'm not talking about a couple decisions before the end road. I'm talking about life and death. And the Proverbs paints a very clear picture for us that if you push your life all the way out to the end. I'm not talking about the next phase in your life. I'm talking about, okay, if I continue in the route that I'm headed in, if I go this way, all the way out, what is the end result and what does wisdom say? I do think it is good for us to consider those things. I don't think it's daydreaming. I don't think it's fanciful thought. I think it is logical and reasoning for us to be able to go, end result of how I'm living right now. Life or death. That's what the scripture does. It gives us the advanced warning system. Listen to Proverbs 3. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Happy are those who hold her tightly. Proverbs 5.21. For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. 
And in Proverbs 8, 35, For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. I don't think it's impractical to push the end result all the way to the end every once in a while in our decision making. Because when we do that, we answer a lot of our questions. Now, we may not like the answers, but we are invited to consider the end results when it comes to wisdom. So I guess the question becomes, are there any ways before death that I can tell that I might not be allowing the wisdom of God to grip me? Is, is death the only way to know that I've been foolish? I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that there are some advanced warning signs to a foolish heart, and I believe that the Scripture does paint a picture for us and helps us know death, death, death doesn't have to be it, okay? Here are a couple things. Here are a couple reminders. Here are a couple heart checkups that you can do to go, am I actually listening or considering the wisdom of God, or am I more concerned about the knowledge of man? See, I'd like to run a diagnostics test together so we can consider the results together. We do this in community. Because oftentimes when we do it by ourselves, we, um, we consider ourselves better than we really are. Right? Like if we're the only one in the room, we'll give ourselves an A. <laughs> but if we'll let the other people's eyes look on us, they may help us be more accurate and authentic, if you will. Our claims that we may know the wisdom of God um, can really be backed up by what we look at in the Scripture. And so for you today, you may be someone who loves knowledge, but maybe that's not the same thing as the wisdom of God. Maybe you're like, well, I love the ways of God, but you haven't considered what the wisdom of God actually looks like lived out. And so this morning, the diagnostics test is a heart test. And I believe there's a simple one, yet very difficult to consider, because when there are things that are off, what do you have to do? You have to let the surgeon work. You have to let the mechanic do what the mechanic does. And it costs sometimes. And so as we consider these words, James chapter 3 gives us a good indicator. And we're going to read this twice, because sometimes I think we could read it three or four or five times, but we'll read it twice together. Same exact verses. I know I'll be repeating myself. It's not because I'm tired, but because I need to repeat these words. James chapter 3. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demotic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. I'm going to read it again. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth 
with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. One of the most shocking statements of this text is the humility that comes from wisdom. One of the most shocking statements in this text is there is humility that comes from wisdom. That's not typically what we think. Because typically when we think of wisdom, we're actually describing human intellect. Like I think of Big Bang Theory and Sheldon Cooper bazingaing everyone, making them feel this big because of what he knows. I think of Dwight Schrute and always trying to win the argument and make everyone know that he is higher than they are. I think of Nick Burns, your company's computer guy, who makes you feel ridiculous because you don't speak computer language. One of the things that I think of that is associated with wisdom is not humility, but it says here that the, hu- the wisdom from above is humble. There's a game changer afoot when we consider that God's wisdom leads us to humility and not arrogance. Today is more of a a public confession, if anything. As someone who loves to read, I love to read theology. I love to see how Jesus opens the door in the sciences and and philosophy. And and he opens the doors to all of these things to fully understand reason and logic. I love all of that. I love reading it. I love chewing on it. I love going, I don't even understand what that guy just said, but I'm going to try multiple times over. Someone explain this to me. I love doing that. But do you know what it led me to love too? Being right. I love being right. And this is the path that all of this head knowledge will begin to cause in us. Rather than winning a person, we want to win an argument. This is what is a result of human knowledge. And I'm not saying we don't look at those things, but here is what I am saying. That when we have a hunger for the words of man that might try and explain the scriptures more than we have a hunger for the actual scripture, we have a heart problem. A serious one. Because the wisdom of from above causes humility in us. Human knowledge by nature builds walls. It does. When we are so up on wanting to know things and stuff, we establish ourselves at this position that is, well, I I know more. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry they don't know what I know. (laughs) We are arrogant about it. And see, some of you, you're like, well, I like to win debates. Some of you in your heart, you make fun of people who don't know what you know. So you don't actually ever say it, but there's still this arrogance about you sitting, knowing what you know, building a wall between you and the person who might be saying something. Because that's what the knowledge of man leads us to, is building walls. But the wisdom of God and the power of God 
ultimately we have found in Christ, and we'll see that in just a minute, tears down the natural walls that we build up between each other. If anything in Paul's writings, you see that Jesus rips down all of these different barriers that we are so good at putting up. And intellect is something that we celebrate in Asheville. It's this, I know things, I'm knowledgeable, I have this new thing. At least the bumper stickers say that. This is why the wisdom of God, we must seriously consider the results that are beginning to show up in our life by what we're pursuing. The wisdom of God makes us humble, not arrogant. The wisdom of God causes us to love his bride more, not less. If you are filling your head with wisdom and knowledge and all these things, and yet you hate being with the bride, or you hate the bride, or you hate the church, then you might want to consider what you're filling your head and your heart with. Because the wisdom of God calls us to lay our lives down for each other. This is the beauty of the covenant people, the gospel people that have been rescued. The wisdom of God doesn't drive us to win arguments, but to win relationships, to bring reconciliation where we naturally would build a wall. Living in the United States, you and I have access to millions of devotionals, blogs, sermons online, books, and more. Here's the deal. I am not against supplements to what we read. In fact, they are good for us. But what I am concerned and what I see in my own heart is when I am more, more excited about a new supplement that's come out rather than the meal I'm supposed to be feasting on in the Word of God. You see, a supplement is supposed to be kind of an additive that makes up for what we're lacking in our regular meals. But the problem is we are not lacking in Scripture. That is life and breath to the believer. I do believe, and I am a huge fan of standing on the shoulders of others who have gone before us and helped us understand and and wrestle with, but does it point me to the humility expressed in the life of Jesus? Or does it cause me to want to win arguments? Whether or not you and I know it, in the Christian world, the church can remain divided because of who we read. And I'm not just talking about Christians reading Fifty Shades of Grey. All right. Now, yes, I do question that. Is that wise? Yes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about within Christendom. And for those of you that may be not Christ followers, this is a church thing where we actually build walls based on who this person reads or doesn't read. And it's a distraction from the mission of God. It's a distraction from the main thing being the main thing. And that is Christ's life, death and resurrection that unites us in the mission, the redemptive mission that God is at work around the world inviting people to the table through Christ Jesus, but we can't sit around the table because this person reads, oh, you know that author. Or this person reads, oh, you know that author. And so we build up these walls naturally that Jesus came to tear down. Listen to Paul's experience because he had the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions. Where? Where? There we go. In the church. 
Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Let, for some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now on, no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. (laughs) I love that. I love the... It's right there. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. I began to look at some of the results in my own life as I was journeying of figuring out who Jesus was. And there have been many who have influenced me in my thoughts. There have been many that have done this with me and I've walked with and it's kind of like I've gone, wow, I don't understand and I do kind of, no, I don't. No, I kind of do. And they've walked with me and it's been an awesome journey on figuring out who Jesus is. But the danger is I can become a champion of a man who has helped me see the scriptures clearly. I can become a repeater of, hu- of, of, of human knowledge or human wisdom rather than a follower of Christ. And it is a dangerous place to be. Many of the men and women that I have grown to respect have taken intentional time to read the scriptures only. To take a year and not read a new book, a new blog about following Jesus, but how do I follow Jesus by reading his word and taking a year and just reading and feasting on the scriptures? They would do that though, not alone, but in community. They would do it with others and say, look, I, I have been diving into these devotionals and been more excited about what this guy has to say about this topic rather than letting the Holy Spirit teach me his words. And the danger here, folks, if we choose to run after outside sources more than the scripture is we are ultimately saying, God, I don't believe you can teach me. The root of the problem is not, well, I'm just not that smart, or I just don't think this way, or I just don't like... It's no, it's unbelief. That's where we're sitting. We're saying, Holy Spirit, you can't teach me. I've got a thick skull. I can't learn from you. So I need to learn from this new author. He'll help me. The beauty of the invitation of the scripture is that you sit yourself at the feet of the master and he begins to unpack and pour his life into us. This is why we need the scripture and why we hold fast to it because it shapes us to look like Christ. More than a devotional that promises you will look like Christ if you read the devotional. Jesus is the one who shapes us into his image. We can't run from that. Burke Parsons put it this way. In your study Bible, there's a line between God's word and the words of men. Don't ever erase that line. When you grow hungry for the commentary more than the actual scripture you will find yourself being filled with the knowledge of men rather than the wisdom of God. Yes, I have helped. I mean, 
I, believe me, I have stood on the shoulders of others who have helped unpack and impart God's word, but my heart warning indicator is, do I run to their words more than I run to the words of the good shepherd? Do I run to their words more than the one who is life itself? These are the heart indicators you and I must wrestle with in a day where we are oversaturated with print, with online access, with blogs, with podcasts. It's really hard to shut out the noise to just sit with Christ through His Word. You know, it's interesting because I think of all that our our brothers and sisters in Christ went through to get the Word of God into the hands of the people so that they could read it and be transformed and shaped by the Holy Spirit. It's almost like we've gone, we don't want it. We've got this guy's commentary on it. We don't want it. We've got this podcast. He explains everything perfectly. We don't want the words. Actually, take them all back. It's dangerous ground for the church when we do not fear the possibility that we are being filled with the knowledge of men rather than the wisdom of God. There are some ways that you and I can tell, and this is my personal, again, confession, some of the ways that I could tell that I was in love with the way someone talks about the Scripture rather than actually loving the Scripture. One of those ways is I'm hostile towards those who don't agree with my favorite authors. I don't just see them as people who have a differentiating, different view from me, a differing view than me. I see them as almost an enemy. Like, what? You don't love this author that I love? How dare you? Let's wrestle. <laughs> but it's a sign. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an alarm. I believe it's a warning that we would be hostile towards those who don't see our authors, our favorite authors, as theirs. And maybe they actually have someone we dislike as one of their favorite, favorite authors. How dangerous is that territory to be on? Walls being built. It's an us versus them attitude within the church. You can tell when you have made an idol out of knowledge and intelligence when someone confronts your way of thinking and you respond to them as if they're the enemy. No longer are they just someone who might have a differing view on something, but you're actually hostile towards them looking for ways to argue with people rather than just enjoying them. Like you can't be around a person you know that has a differing view than you and all you want to do is argue with them about why they have a differing view with them. You can't just enjoy that they're your brother or they're your sister in Christ. Building walls. You see yourself as an outsider inside the church. You see, here's the problem, guys. In Christ, we're never outsiders. Do you know that? Do you know that in Christ you have been brought in to the kingdom of His dear Son in Christ? You're never outside. But what man's knowledge causes us to say, I just don't belong anywhere. I can't be there. I can't be there. And all we do is build walls. You can't be around those whose non-essential views on Scripture differ from yours. I, it's one of those things to where we will make issues out of the things that were not essential issues in the Scripture. You know what the church came around? is God's declaration of who Jesus is. Born of a virgin. Lived a sinless life. 
died a sinner's death in my place, rose from the dead, and will return. This is what the church cried out loud as their declaration, and even their enemies knew what they were united around. But see, in America, we are oversaturated with information, and we have lost the simplicity of the gospel. You know, I, I, I talked with a man who um, is not living in the Middle East, and he heads up a society there, and he was talking about um, being a gospel-centered people in a very difficult culture. Now, being in the Middle East, definitely don't want to compare it to where we're at. But what he said was, there were things that he had to learn to put aside for the advancement of God's rescue mission. There were things that he had to go, we can't make these priority. Do we come around this? Yes, let's move forward. How are we obeying what we know about the scriptures? You and I will not be held accountable for the things God has not revealed to us. But we will be held accountable for the things he has. And you know what he's revealed? Jesus. This is where we come together. This is where the wisdom from God causes humility in us. You can tell when you want to hear other people's words about what the Bible says rather than what Jesus has to say is you look for other people who think just like you. You don't want to be around people who don't think like you. You want uniformity. You don't want unity. You want uniformity. You hunger for other people's views on scriptures from books, blogs, posts more than the scriptures itself. And the only silly example I could think of was if my wife and I were sitting down for dinner or coffee or something and she begins to say words to me, Jason, I love you. And then I actually have John Long come sit next to her and say, tell me what she means by that. My wife looks at me and says, hey, I just needed to talk to you about X, Y, Z. John, tell me what she means by that. I can't wait to go sit down and talk with John. <laughs> I can't wait to go sit down. It doesn't make sense. In fact, you can see why it would be a problem for me to love the words of John Long more than the words of my wife, right? <laughs> but that's what we do when we're like, oh man, I want this new commentary, I want this new this, this devotional. Have you been reading in the devotional? I mean, it's got one word from scripture, but it's a great devotional. Really. I don't have a problem with these things, but when our hearts are hungry for supplements and not the main course... We have a problem. The wisdom of God causes us to be thankful, not entitled. The wisdom of God causes us to hate our sin, not tolerate it. The wisdom of God causes us to call people out of their sin, not to celebrate it or settle into it. The wisdom of God is constantly calling out and he uses us to invite people to know life and to know breath and to know Jesus and to know that they were made for everything that God says of them through Christ. The wisdom of God causes us to trust him more and more and ourselves less and less. And the goal is not to sit around and debate the scripture. The church becomes a place where we obey the scripture together. We just want to do his words because they're as honey to us. They are sweet because we have seen that he really is savior, that he really does rescue those who are broken. He really does offer life to the dead. He offers new redemption and hope and joy where all that is seen is despair. And so his words become sweet to us. They become something we long for 
not that we hold the edge. Humility says, how do we obey this together? What does that look like? Man, the Sermon on the Mount, that's tough. How do I put that into practice? I don't know. Well, let's try it. Let's figure it out. Let's wrestle with it together. Let's walk it together in obedience. Well, walking by the Spirit and not the flesh. I don't even know what that means. Well, let's do that together. Let's walk. Let's figure it out. Let's pray. God, help us obey your word. Do you know he'll give us what we need? Purity? That's a joke. Does God even know what it's like to be a dude in the 21st century? If purity is something he longs for from us, do you know he'll fuel it? Do you know he'll give us what we need to walk it? When we abandon the scripture, we abandon all hope of knowing God's purposes for us, God's journey with us. And if I'm to fix my eyes on Jesus, I'm going to need people to do that with me. Rejection of the wisdom of God leads to divisions of every kind. And it can pretty, pretty much sum itself up in causing us to build walls. That's what we do. We're naturally good at building walls. But Paul made it very clear that Jesus is just more than someone who has wisdom to offer. He became wisdom for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for a sign from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. As the band comes and we, we, we close our time together and enter into a time of baptism, many will reject the gospel not because of its demands, but because of it is its simplicity. Many will reject the gospel invitation because it's too simple. The Jews, they wanted to see a powerful salvation. They wanted to see this Messiah that was coming who's going to knock down all these other authorities and sit on a throne and be powerful and to die. That's not power, that's weakness. The Greeks, they wanted to appear wise and wisdom to be everything that appeared off of them and flowed off of them. They wanted to be shown as smart or intelligent, but to end up dead, that means you weren't smart enough. 
Jesus became the power of God on our behalf and the wisdom of God on our behalf. I read a story from a pastor in the 1800s, and I don't necessarily, this may be one of those exaggerated pastor stories, you know, you know where like pastors kind of make things up to prove a point, because they do that. Uh, didn't, know if you, didn't know if you knew that, but they do. Um, I was reading of this, this pastor was telling the story of a, a church that was built, and it was built with these stones, and within the stones, a plaque was put in the stones that said, We preach Christ crucified. And he said that the church, it started on this platform of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place. Jesus took what I deserved, died a sinner's death, to purchase for me life that I cannot find on my own. And the church saw this growth in the area, the gospel going forward. And he said over time, ivy continued to climb the wall of this stone church. And ironically, he said the ivy covered the plaque to where it only said, we preach Christ. And then this sign began to be covered. He said the traditions of the church began to change and it was no longer Jesus' rescue on our behalf. It was Jesus, the moral teacher. Jesus, the social activist. Jesus, the he's our example. Let's do what he does because if we don't, we're not his followers. He said over more time, the ivy continued to grow over the the stone wall and the plaque and it read, we preach. And he said, so went the pulpit of the church in that the preaching became social justice or philosophers of the day or good behavior or moralism or how to do this or how to have a better that and this, that and the other. And the reality was the doors of the church shut and it closed. You see, the danger of not preaching Christ crucified is we begin to preach the wisdom and knowledge of man, which is foolishness. And the reality of our invitation is to be united under the person of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. We'll be baptizing in just a moment. And I want you to know, Linda will not be baptized in the name of her favorite devotional writer. She won't be part of a body that is coming together around a really intelligent college professor. She won't be looking to a one Lord, as Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Just, let's just read it. Ephesians 4.2, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. One body. One Lord. One faith. And that faith is not placed in the name of your favorite author in the Christian world. One baptism. And it's not in the name of any person that mentors us. One God. And He will not share His glory with anyone else. We are a people that is united under the finished work of what Jesus has done. We are in a unique context and culture, a very difficult culture to minister in, and the culture pays attention when the church builds walls. But the culture also pays attention when people who can disagree, disagree, but love each other the same. This is what the gospel does. It changes 
who we are and what we naturally tend to do by giving us what we need through His Spirit. So this morning, we're going to be celebrating, we're going to be singing some worship, but we're also going to be celebrating baptism. When someone says out loud, Jesus is enough, it's a declaration that doesn't get made enough today. So we celebrate today as the body of Christ with the one who would say, yeah, I'm I'm ready to make that declaration. And as always, we will have elders and gel leaders standing over here that if you would just want someone to pray for you in the midst of trying to understand what does wisdom from God look like? What does the knowledge of man look like? I don't get it. I'm struggling. I'm, I, I've got some hard-hearted issues and my head is thick and I don't understand. I need the wisdom of God. He really does give it to us. He wants to impart it to us. He wants to fill us. He wants to send us out so that we can love the way he loved us. If that's you, they'd love to pray for you. I'm not going to make you fill out any cards, do anything silly. They'd just love to pray for you. As you're crying out for wisdom, they're crying out for wisdom. We're all crying out for wisdom. We've all worn the fool's hat. But there fortunately was one on our behalf who never did, and that's Jesus. Father, thank you for loving us. And I ask that in these moments that we would worship that we'd say thank you for becoming the power of God and the wisdom of God and thank you that it's simple enough for children to understand and that your invitation to life is real. God, that our hearts would be softened to your leadership. Holy Spirit, move in us. Shape us, speak to us. Give us your word. It's in your name we pray.